You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are a God who never fails, that you have proven your kindness and trustworthiness to us again and again, supremely in giving yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray now that as we turn to your word that bears witness to him, that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be those who do not just hear your word and walk away unchanged, but that we would respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, family, again. Great to see you. For those of you joining us online and anywhere else, we're grateful that you're here. Um, we are in a sermon series on this season of Easter. Happy Easter, by the way, sixth Sunday of Easter, in which we are going deep into our resurrection hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead um, is an event that Christians believe has radically changed the universe, past, present, future, that its repercussions extend to the ends of creation and encompass all of life. And so we're trying to explore the powerful implications of the resurrection in this season of Eastertide. We've looked at how the resurrection changes our experience of suffering. We've looked at how it is the catalyst for personal change. Um, Today we're looking at something that actually the New Testament spends a lot of time talking about, and that is how the resurrection means hope for our bodies, hope for our physical bodies. So let's um, read. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to be reading selections from verses 35 through 54. This is a pretty long and complicated passage, and we're going to try to understand it a little bit better today. And if you have time later, I'd commend you to read the whole chapter. So hear God's word, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now look at verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed 
with the imperishable and the mortal, with immortality, then this saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Every so often when you're on the internet, you'll see an article that's something about like 100 things to do before you die, or um, 50 places to visit before you die, or uh, 100 foods to eat before you die. And there's always lots of very interesting things on, on the list. It makes you feel like you desperately need to go shark cave diving or spend the night in an igloo village or eat a sea urchin um, or something like that. Um, but I think as fun as some of these lists are, I think what the trend reveals is a great concern that is true for many of us, and that is that life is so painfully short. And it feels, I think, that time is running out and we want to experience the best of what's out there before it's too late. Um, I think we, a lot of us have a fear that we're going to get to the end of our life and we haven't experienced all that the world has to offer. And this is just made infinitely worse by the internet and by Instagram envy, um, which all fuels our FOMO, our fear of missing out. <laughs> We're increasingly desperate not to miss the best of what's out there and plagued by the fear that we might. Life is short and you only get one shot and you are losing time with every passing year. And this is, I think, just one of the ways that death quietly haunts us. Uh, we don't like to think about death, obviously. I was just up in New Hampshire this week for a couple days for a retreat, and I saw many churches up there, many very old churches, and it's interesting, it used to be the churches were surrounded by graveyards, so you literally had to walk through the dead every week that you went to church, every week be reminded of your impending doom. These days, we keep death as far away as possible. Now, our only real encounters with death are in professionalized, sanitized institutions that we barely ever visit. The amazing achievements of modern medicine have pushed death further and further away and made it feel less and less a part of our daily struggle or existence. And yet, there is no stopping it. All of the wars and plagues and the pandemic of the last two years have not done a thing to raise or lower the death toll. It is always one per person. <laughs> Bill Bryson, um, the essayist, writes, there are thousands of things that can kill us and we escape every one of them except one. I don't know if I'm just weird. I probably am. I know I am weird. But... I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I just look at my hand and I think about the fact that one day this hand will be lifeless. That the nails will turn purple, the flesh will erode, that this will be the hand of a skeleton. Is that weird? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came today? I am only naming what is true, what is true. And yet that we all repress. Sorry, kids, to freak you out there. Um, and yet it fuels our anxiety to not waste any time to make the most of our time. If time is running out, we only have one life, and it's just too short. And yet, 
the shocking, unbelievable hope of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that all of this is wrong. That yes, you will die and your body will decay, but your skeleton hand will be re-enfleshed, remade, transformed. That this 80 to 90 year lifespan is not the only life you have. That there is so much life, so much world, so much possibility for the future, that when you die, you have only just begun. This is what we mean when we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. We're not talking about heaven. We're not talking about immortality of the soul. We're not talking about spiritual survival. We are talking about Jesus' defeat of death itself, that you will be risen from the grave, clothed with a transformed body, living forever in a resurrected earth. That is the Christian hope. Do you believe that? <laughs> so let, let's unpack that, okay? Let's ask a few questions about this shocking passage. First, what are we talking about when we say the resurrection of the dead or the resurrection of the body? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment. The chapter opens with Paul um, defending the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is actually the most magnificent defense of the resurrection in the whole Bible. Paul is very keen to defend the literal resurrection of Jesus. He says, what I passed on, I re what I received, I passed on of first importance, that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. What he means is that when we say Jesus is risen, we don't mean that Jesus' spirit lives on. We don't mean that his memory is in our hearts, like Elvis or something. We mean that literally Jesus rose with a transformed body and a reconfigured existence, and that even when he ascended into heaven, he did not shed his body like a space shuttle sheds its booster rockets, uh, but that he now is in the presence of God in heaven, that's the place where God lives, with a full, solid, and fleshed body reigning and promises to return in bodily form for us. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is risen. But about a third of the way through the chapter, Paul makes a shift from talking about Jesus' resurrection to talking about our resurrection. He begins to say and argue that if you're united to Jesus, the same thing that God did for Jesus, he's gonna do for you. And so just as Christ triumphed over death, so you too will triumph over death. Just as Jesus rose from the grave, so you too will be raised from the grave. Just as Jesus was given a transformed body, so you will be given a transformed body. He, he uses this metaphor of first fruit. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we talked about this a few weeks ago, just like you know, the first tomato in your garden signals the coming multiplicity of tomatoes, hopefully. So the resurrection of Jesus is the first crop that will be the ultimate resurrected family. His resurrection is the starting gun of the resurrection to follow for all those who belong to him it is the preview of the future film that will be true for all who know him. As God did for Jesus, he will do for us, raise us from the grave to new transformed bodily life. Apparently, there were some in Corinth who did not believe this. They were um, deeply affected by a Greek philosophical idea called Gnosticism, which sees the body as bad and the spirit as good. Matter is evil, 
and yet the soul as holy. And they were teaching that when you die, your body, you shed your evil body and you, your soul goes away to some glorious heavenly place. Now, unfortunately, this philosophy infected the church and Paul is emphatically writing, no, our Christian hope is not our souls drifting away. The Christian hope is about the body, that our physical bodies will be transformed to be like his. So he writes in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, listen to this, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So when you trust in Christ, God takes the spirit of the resurrected Jesus and deposits him in you. And so now it's almost like to use a sort of a crude analogy, um, it's like you have new creation software in an old creation hardware, right? But one day, he says, that new creation that is in you already, will, that old body will be given a new creation hardware and that your body will be transformed and renewed and glorified as Jesus's is right now. This is what we're waiting for. God has not saved us in order for us to one day escape our bodies, but to redeem them. Well, what does that mean? Right? What kind of what would our bodies be like? Does that mean you'll finally get the six pack that you've always wanted and not have a receding hairline and have the chin structure you always hoped for? Well, no. Jesus did not die to help you achieve the 21st century of Western beauty stereotypes. No. Um, Look at verses 42 through 44. These are a little confusing, but the main point that Paul wants to make is that our new bodies will be almost radically, unimaginably transformed. That they will still have some sort of organic connection to our current bodies, and yet they will be radically different as well. Just before the service, I went outside and I was rooting around at the bottom of the trees and people were looking at me like I was a little odd, but I was looking for this. I was looking for an acorn. Y'all see this? Kids, can you see this? It's really small. Um, now, what happens to acorns? This is not a trick question, little ones. What happens to acorns when they fall into the ground and find good soil and grow? Yes, sir. What happens? It grows into what? What, is it, what does an acorn grow into? Anybody know? Yes. An oak tree. Yes. In fact, have you all seen those two oak trees out front? How tall do you think there are? 100 feet tall, 125 feet tall, right? Um, imagine if you had never seen an oak tree before. All you saw was this. You would never be able to guess that a 100-foot oak tree with huge limbs and beautiful, colorful leaves would come from this. So there is discontinuity between this acorn and that oak tree, and yet they have the same DNA. They're made of the same stuff, and yet there's been a radical transformation. And Paul says, that's what your resurrection will be like. You'll still be you, but you, the seed that your body is right now, will be transformed into something unimaginable. Can you imagine? And the only glimpse that we ever get of this is in the gospel accounts of Jesus' own resurrection body, right? What happened to Jesus is a preview of what happened to us. And so Jesus was still himself. And yet he was different. He was transfigured. He was glorified. He could eat, drink. He made a fire. You know, they recognized him. Apparently you're really good at making fires with your new bodies. Um, and yet he could also walk through walls and 
disappear. He was still himself, yet more of himself. He was glorified and changed. And so Paul says in Philippians 3, we eagerly await a Savior from heaven. See that? We're not waiting to go to heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from heaven, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be made like his glorious body. Paul says, right now we bear the image of the man of dust, Adam, which is frail and weak and vulnerable to disease and death. But one day we will bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, imperishable, powerful, glorious. Right now, our bodies are tenuous. We start off weak and we end up weak. And in between, we're weak, right? Uh, We're captive to fragility and disease. We struggle, perish, and our bodies die and decompose. And yet one day, what does Paul say? We'll be oak trees. One day, can you imagine? Can you imagine having your aches and pains and wounds and scars redeemed and restored? Can you imagine being the whole and glorious resurrected person that God made you to be? This is your future. This is what Jesus has risen to give you. That's the end of our story. That's our hope. Well, my last question is this then. What difference does this make? Right? What difference does the resurrection of the body make for here and now? Well, let me just mention a few things. First of all, I think it clarifies our hope. Let's, let's be honest. Um, hardly anyone believes this, even Christians. When you ask the average Christian, what's their hope for after death? Almost every Christian says something like, going to heaven when you die. Uh, we have this idea of some cloudy place with naked baby angels where we exist forever in some wispy spiritual existence and eternal worship service that, at least to me, sounds really, really boring. Um, I've done a lot of funerals the last 20 years. I hear people say all kinds of things at funerals, like, John's in heaven right now looking down on us, or Judy is dancing up there right now on her new legs, or when you look at the stars, there's Carol smiling down at you. All of these are nice thoughts, and I would never correct anyone at a funeral. That would be very rude and insensitive. Um, I just simply want to say that they do not reflect the fullness of the Christian hope. The historic Christian hope is not heaven, friends. It's resurrection. I just, you know, I I walked around in a graveyard this week. I like to do that. Y'all are thinking, this guy's really weird. But but I took a picture of a gravestone that I wanted to show you. Um, This is Reverend Roswell Shirtliff who died in, what does it say, 18-something? But I want you to note what it says on the gravestone there. It says, um, here lies Roswell Shirtliff, who fell asleep in the Lord in sure hope of immortal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, what does that do? That reflects the historic biblical view of death. That death is a two-stage process, that when you die, you sleep. That's the word that Paul uses over and over again. You sleep. You enter into some intermediate state. We know very little about that state except simply that we are with Christ. This is why Paul says, I long to depart and be with Christ, Philippians 1. This is why Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. That means to be with Christ. That's the intermediate state in heaven. The Bible says remarkably little about this, simply that when you're dead, you're with Christ. The overwhelming emphasis in Scripture is not on where we wait while we sleep in death, but what we are waiting for. And what are we waiting for? the day of resurrection, the return of Christ, the uniting of heaven and earth, and the resurrection of the body. Here's another gravestone. This one says, Resurgum. This is what almost every gravestone said until about 100 years ago. 
That's Latin for I shall rise again. It does not say I'm in heaven. It says I will rise. That's the Christian hope. That's what we wait for with all the saints, the living and the dead, the day of resurrection. N.T. Wright says this, resurrection is not a fancy way of saying going to heaven when you die. It is not about life after death as such. Rather, it's a way of talking about being bodily alive again after a period of being bodily dead. Resurrection is a second stage post-mortem life, life after life after death. So much reinforces the opposite. The culture does. I mean, we watch movies like Pixar's Soul, which I actually love, made me cry, but it portrays our destiny as like being detached from the body in some faraway place. Some of the hymns that we sing, I'm sorry y'all to do this to you, but we sing, we sing a lot of unbiblical stuff sometimes. Um, <laughs> How great thou art. I love that hymn. The last verse says this, and when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, that's terrible, sorry. What joy shall fill my heart? It's a picture of a disembodied hope, hope without the body, hope in some heavenly place. That's not the Bible. That's Gnosticism. Even the popularity of cremation or funeral services where no body is present reflects this trend. I'm not criticizing anyone about choosing cremation. There's important reasons for this, like running out of space. I'm just noting the trend that it reflects. Cremation is still prohibited by the Orthodox Church today because they believe it undermines the belief in the resurrection of the body that we will not simply be merged back into the created world without any future embodied life. No, our future is that this body, this very flesh you inhabit now, will be remade and renewed. Heaven is not our destination. That would be like saying the transit lounge or the airport is your final destination. Heaven is the transit lounge. Our destination is the resurrection. Not life after death, life after life after death. The ultimate hope is a resurrected world. This is the astonishing, beautiful hope that Jesus has died and risen to give us. Richard Hayes is a pastor and professor and he told the story about a young girl in his church, teenager named Stephanie, whose older sister Lisa was killed in a car accident. And people were saying stuff to her like, um, well, gosh, Lisa is so much happier now. And God must have wanted Lisa to be with her. And Lisa is like an angel looking down and telling us not to be sad. And the more people talk like this, the madder Stephanie got. It seemed to deny the reality of death and the tragedy that occurred, and yet she felt bad because as a Christian, she thought she was supposed to believe that stuff. But then her pastor showed her and read with her 1 Corinthians 15. He showed her that death is not a happy transition, but a destructive enemy that will be conquered at the final end of the age. It helped her acknowledge that her sister really is dead, it brought closure by acknowledging that her sister's body is indeed in the ground, but at the same time claiming the hope that she will hold her sister in her arms again, that she will feel the weight of her body against her own, and that they will be reunited in embodied, resurrected life. That's our hope, life after life after death. Another thing I think it does is it dignifies our bodies. I think one of the effects of just talking about a heavenly future is that we diminish the importance of the body now. But it's almost like we believe sometimes that the true you is your inner soul, and your body is just like a container, like a Tupperware container. 
and that one day you'll just get to shed the container and be the real you again. But no, the Bible teaches that your body is not, you don't have a body, you are a body. It's central to who you are. God didn't make Adam by making his soul and then finding a container to put the soul in. He made his body and then breathed life into it. A person is an animated body, not an incarnated soul. So what that means is that your body is central to your personhood. You were given a body, and you will always have a body. And that makes your body glorious. We all resent our bodies in certain ways. We all experience shame in our bodies in certain ways. But God has radically dignified your body, not just by creating it, not just by inhabiting it in the incarnation, but by promising the recreation of your body through the resurrection. Everything about you, your gender, your shape, your ethnicity, the color of your skin, eyes, color and texture of your hair, the tenor of your voice, these qualities of your physicality are essential to who you are, so much so that God will recreate and transform them in the new creation. This is especially powerful for those who suffer with shame or who have been told that their bodies are worthless or undignified in some ways, whether because of trauma or abuse or even racism. Esau Macaulay is a professor at New Testament at Wheaton College, and recently he wrote about the meaning of the resurrection of the body for black Americans. Um, he wrote about the recent Buffalo shooting, that those who were killed were targeted because of their black bodies, their physical frames. And for many of our black friends, like Esau, shootings like that are a moment of pain that reminds them of the long history of violence against the black body in America. But this is what he wrote in The Atlantic, um, which I think is so beautiful. He says, when my body is raised, it will be a black body, one that is honored alongside bodies of every hue and color. The resurrection of black bodies will be the definitive rejection of all forms of racism. At the end of the Christian story, I am not saved from my blackness. It is rendered everlasting. Our bodies, liberated and transfigured but still black, will be the eternal testimony to our worth. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is an eternal testimony to your worth. For those who suffer racism, the Christian answer is not colorblindness. No, the resurrection calls us to affirm the unique and beautiful cultural distinctions of every person made in the image of God. You are affirmed in your body through the glorification of your body through Jesus Christ. For those who have conflict with their bodies, we come alongside and offer compassion and seek to affirm the goodness of their bodies as gifted and ultimately glorified by God. For those who suffer shame with their bodies because of trauma or violence or abuse, we point to the hope of a healed body, a restored, a body made whole, and the promise that the Spirit can begin that restorative work in you even now. The resurrection body of Jesus infuses our bodies with dignity and promises that they will be honored and glorified forever. One last thing I think this does is it deepens our endurance. You know, going back to where we started, death haunts us. It's a specter over our bodies. You know, I'm in my mid-40s now. I know I'm not very old, and yet I've noticed in the last couple of years the world is becoming too loud. I get really excited about going to bed. Um, I find myself getting hurt a lot more, and it's not because of exciting things like getting in a shark tank or, you know, skateboarding. It's because of things like sleeping or walking or, or sitting at my desk. Um, um, I mean, many of our bodies are marred uh, by surgery and chemotherapy and arthritis and failing parts, failing eyes and ears and hearts. Our bodies are winding down, and it's painful. 
And as they do, we often are reminded acutely of how fleeting life is, that it feels like a mist or a shadow. Sometimes I look at photos of my girls when they were little, and I just sometimes start crying because I realize how quickly time is passing, and it feels lost. Some of you older saints have told, just recently a friend told me that with tears that she has lost about a dozen friends in the last two years. She said, when you're in your 80s, grief comes wave upon wave. And yet the resurrection of the dead changes all of this. The fact is, this body now, in all the ways it is both a blessing and a burden, is not the only bodily existence you will ever have. Through Christ, we have in store a future resurrection where there will be no more sin, no more weakness, no more arthritis, no Parkinson's, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no chronic headaches, no chronic pain, no disease. In terms of life, many of us here are past our prime, and yet our best physical days are ahead of you, not behind you. You don't need to constantly look back on past times and past glories and bemoan the limitations of age. You don't need to worry about squeezing every last drop of pleasure out of this physical life or missing out on some important experience. Gray hair, aging bodies, deepening lines, they don't need to speak to you of a past that you can't get back. They can speak of a future that you can barely conceive. The best is yet to come. The real glory days are ahead of you. And what does this do? It gives us patient endurance, that even in the season of aging, you claim hope. You can patiently endure through aches and pains, knowing that resurrection is coming. You can be grateful for the life that you have had and not grieve what has been lost because of what so much is ahead. When it's time to die, you can peacefully let go of life, knowing that there is a better bodily life ahead. And we speak hope into the lives of others, anticipating new life of the world to come. The poet George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner, but Christ has made him to be just a gardener. You never bury a Christian. You plant them one day to arise, to resurrected life. So friends, Christ is risen. Our hope is a bodily hope. He conquered death. If Jesus only saved our souls, he wouldn't have conquered death. He would have just ensured our spiritual survival. But by his death, he conquered death. And by his resurrection, he guarantees our own. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are risen from the dead and that you have guaranteed our bodily resurrection to come. Give us hope as we labor on in this veil of tears and we anticipate the day when the trumpet will sound, when you will return. Heaven and earth will be merged and our bodies will be made new. Give us hope to look to that day and we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your conquering of death. In Christ's name, amen.